0: chapter 35 part 2 of the decline and fall of the roman empire volume 3 this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org the decline and fall of the roman empire volume 3 by edward gibbon chapter 35 invasion by attila part 2 when attila declared his resolution of supporting the cause of his allies the Vandals and the Franks, at the same time, and almost in the spirit of romantic chivalry, the savage monarch professed himself the lover and the champion of the princess Honoria. The sister of Valentinian was educated in the palace of Ravenna, and as her marriage might be productive of some danger to the state, she was raised, by the title of Augusta, above the hopes of the most presumptuous subject. But the fair Honoria had no sooner attained the sixteenth year of her age, than she detested the importunate greatness which must forever exclude her from the comforts of honourable love in the midst of vain and unsatisfactory pomp honoria sighed yielded to the impulse of nature and threw herself into the arms of her chamberlain eugenius her guilt and shame such is the absurd language of imperious man were soon betrayed by the appearances of pregnancy but the disgrace of the royal family was published to the world by the imprudence of the empress placidia who dismissed her daughter, after a strict and shameful confinement, to a remote exile at Constantinople. The unhappy princess passed twelve or fourteen years in the irksome society of the sisters of Theodosius, and their chosen virgins, to whose crown Honoria could no longer aspire, and whose monastic assiduity of prayer, fasting, and vigils she reluctantly imitated. Her impatience of long and hopeless celibacy urged her to embrace a strange and desperate resolution. The name of Attila was familiar and formidable at Constantinople, and his frequent embassies entertained a perpetual intercourse between his camp and the imperial palace. In the pursuit of love, or rather of revenge, the daughter of Placidia sacrificed every duty and every prejudice, and offered to deliver her person into the arms of a barbarian, of whose language she was ignorant, whose figure was scarcely human, and whose religion and manners she abhorred. By the ministry of a faithful eunuch, she transmitted to Attila a ring, the pledge of her affection, and earnestly conjured him to claim her as a lawful spouse, to whom he had been secretly betrothed. These indecent advances were received, however, with coldness and disdain, and the king of the Huns continued to multiply the number of his wives, till his love was awakened by the more forcible passions of an ambition and avarice. The invasion of Gaul was preceded, and justified, by a formal demand of the princess Honoria, with a just and equal share of the imperial patrimony. His predecessors, the ancient Tanjus, had often addressed, in the same hostile and peremptory manner, the daughters of China, and the pretensions of Attila were not less offensive to the majesty of Rome. A firm but temperate refusal was communicated to his ambassadors. The right of female succession, though it might derive a specious argument from the recent examples of Placidia and Pulcheria, was strenuously denied, and the indissoluble engagements of Honoria were opposed to the claims of her Scythian lover. On the discovery of her connection with the king of the Huns, the guilty princess had been sent away, as an object of horror, from Constantinople to Italy. Her life was spared, but the ceremony of her marriage was performed with some obscure and nominal husband— before she was immured in a perpetual prison to bewail those crimes and misfortunes which honoria might have escaped had she not been born the daughter of an emperor a native of gaul and a contemporary the learned and eloquent sidonius who was afterwards bishop of clermont had made a promise to one of his friends that he would compose a regular history of the war of attila if the modesty of sidonius had not discouraged him from the prosecution of this interesting work the historian would have related, with the simplicity of truth, those memorable events to which the poet, in vague and doubtful metaphors, has concisely alluded. The kings and nations of Germany and Scythia, from the Volga, perhaps to the Danube, obeyed the warlike summons of Attila. From the royal village, in the plains of Hungary, his standard moved towards the west, and after a march of seven or eight hundred miles, he reached the conflux of the Rhine and the Neckar, where he was joined by the Franks, who adhered to his ally, the elder of the sons of Clodion. A troop of light barbarians, who roamed in quest of plunder, might choose the winter for the convenience of passing the river on the ice, but the innumerable cavalry of the Huns required such plenty of forage and provisions as could be procured only in a milder season. The Hercynian forests supplied materials for a bridge of boats, and the hostile myriads were poured, with resistless violence, into the Belgic provinces. The consternation of Gaul was universal, and the various fortunes of its cities have been adorned by tradition with martyrdoms and miracles. Troy was saved by the merits of St. Lupus, St. Servatius was removed from the world that he might not behold the ruin of Tongres and the prayers of St. Genevieve diverted the march of Attila from the neighborhood of Paris. But as the greatest part of the Gallic cities were alike destitute of saints and soldiers, they were besieged and stormed by the Huns, who practiced, in the example of Metz, their customary maxims of war. They involved, in a promiscuous massacre, the priests who had served at the altar, and the infants who in the hour of danger had been providently baptized by the bishop. The flourishing city was delivered to the flames, and a solitary chapel of st stephen marked the place where it formerly stood from the rhine and the moselle attila advanced into the heart of gaul crossed the seine at auxerre and after a long and laborious march fixed his camp under the walls of orleans he was desirous of securing his conquest by the possession of an advantageous post which commanded the passage of the loire, and he depended on the secret invitation of Sangoban, king of the Ilani, who had promised to betray the city, and to revolt from the service of the empire. But this treacherous conspiracy was detected and disappointed. Orléans had been strengthened with recent fortifications, and the assaults of the Huns were vigorously repelled by the faithful valor of the soldiers, or citizens, who defended the place. The pastoral diligence of Anianus, a bishop of primitive sanctity and consummate prudence, exhausted every art of religious policy to support their courage, till the arrival of the expected succors. After an obstinate siege the walls were shaken by the battering-rams, the Huns had already occupied the suburbs, and the people, who were incapable of bearing arms, lay prostrate in prayer. Anianus, who anxiously counted the days and hours, dispatched a trusty messenger to observe, from the rampart, the face of the distant country. He returned twice without any intelligence that could inspire hope or comfort. But in his third report he mentioned a small cloud, which he had faintly descried at the extremity of the horizon. "'It is the aid of God!' exclaimed the bishop, in a tone of pious confidence, and the whole multitude repeated after him. "'It is the aid of God!' The remote object, on which every eye was fixed, became each moment larger, and more distinct. The Roman and Gothic banners were gradually perceived, and a favorable wind blowing aside the dust discovered, in deep array, the impatient squadrons of Etius and Theodoric, who pressed forwards to the relief of Orléans. The facility with which Attila had penetrated into the heart of Gaul may be ascribed to his insidious policy as well as to the terror of arms his public declarations were skillfully mitigated by his private assurances, he alternately soothed and threatened the Romans and the Goths, and the courts of Ravenna and Toulouse, mutually suspicious of each other's intentions, beheld with supine indifference the approach of their common enemy. Etius was the sole guardian of the public safety, but his wisest measures were embarrassed by a faction which, since the death of Placidia, infested the imperial palace, The youth of Italy trembled at the sound of the trumpet, and the barbarians, who from fear or affection were inclined to the cause of Attila, awaited with doubtful and venal faith the event of the war. The patrician passed the Alps at the head of some troops, whose strength and numbers scarcely deserved the name of an army. But on his arrival at Arles, or Lyons, he was confounded by the intelligence that the Visigoths, refusing to embrace the defense of Gaul, had determined to expect, within their own territories, the formidable invader whom they professed to despise. The senator Avitus, who, after the honorable exercise of the praetorian prefecture, had retired to his estate in Auvergne, was persuaded to accept the important embassy which he executed with ability and success. He represented to Theodoric that an ambitious conqueror, who aspired to the dominion of the earth, could be resisted only by the firm and unanimous alliance of the powers whom he labored to oppress. The lively eloquence of Avitus inflamed the Gothic warriors, by the description of the injuries which their ancestors had suffered from the Huns, whose implacable fury still pursued them from the Danube to the foot of the Pyrenees. He strenuously urged that it was the duty of every Christian to save, from sacrilegious violation, the churches of God and the relics of the saints, that it was the interest of every barbarian who had acquired a settlement in Gaul to defend the fields and vineyards which were cultivated for his use against the desolation of the Scythian shepherds. Theodoric yielded to the evidence of truth, adopted the measure at once, the most prudent and the most honorable, and declared that, as the faithful ally of Etius and the Romans, he was ready to expose his life and kingdom for the common safety of Gaul. The Visigoths, who at that time were in the mature vigour of their fame and power, obeyed with alacrity the signal of war, prepared their arms and horses, and assembled under the standard of their aged king, who was resolved, with his two eldest sons, Torismond and Theodoric, to command in person his numerous and valiant people. The example of the Goths determined several tribes or nations that seemed to fluctuate between the Huns and the Romans, The indefatigable diligence of the patrician gradually collected the troops of Gaul and Germany, who had formerly acknowledged themselves the subjects or soldiers of the Republic, but who now claimed the rewards of voluntary service, and the rank of independent allies, the Leti, the Amoricans, the Breons, the Saxons, the Burgundians, the Sarmatians or Alani, the Ripuarians, and the Franks, who followed Merovis as their lawful prince such was the various army which under the conduct of Etius and theodoric advanced by rapid marches to relieve orleans and to give battle to the innumerable host of attila on their approach the king of the huns immediately raised the siege and sounded a retreat to recall the foremost of his troops from the pillage of a city which they had already entered the valor of attila was always guided by his prudence and as he foresaw the fatal consequences of a defeat in the heart of gaul he repassed the Seine and expected the enemy in the plains of Chalons, whose smooth and level surface was adapted to the operations of his Scythian cavalry. But in this tumultuary retreat the vanguard of the Romans and their allies continually pressed, and sometimes engaged, the troops, whom Attila had posted in the rear. The hostile columns, in the darkness of the night and the perplexity of the roads, might encounter each other without design and the bloody conflict of the Franks and Gepidae, in which fifteen thousand barbarians were slain, was a prelude to a more general and decisive action. The Catalonian fields spread themselves round Chalons, and extend, according to the vague measurement of Jordanus, to the length of one hundred and fifty and the breadth of one hundred miles, over the whole province which is entitled to the appellation of a Champagne country. This spacious plain was distinguished, however, by some inequalities of ground, and the importance of a height, which commanded the camp of Attila, was understood and disputed by the two generals. The young and valiant Torismond first occupied the summit, the Goths rushed with irresistible weight on the Huns, who labored to ascend from the opposite side, and the possession of this advantageous post inspired both the troops and their leaders with a fair assurance of victory. The anxiety of Attila prompted him to consult his priests and harrispices. It was reported that after scrutinizing the entrails of victims and scraping their bones, they revealed in mysterious language his own defeat, with the death of his principal adversary, and that the barbarians, by accepting the equivalent, expressed his involuntary esteem for the superior merit of Aetius but the unusual despondency which seemed to prevail among the huns engaged attila to use the expedient so familiar to the generals of antiquity of animating his troops by a military oration and his language was that of a king who had often fought and conquered at their head he pressed them to consider their past glory their actual danger and their future hopes the same fortune which opened the deserts and morasses of scythia to their unarmed valor which had laid so many warlike nations prostrate at their feet, had reserved the joys of this memorable field for the consummation of their victories. The cautious steps of their enemies, their strict alliance, their advantageous posts, he artfully represented as the effects, not of prudence but of fear." The Visigoths alone were the strength and nerves of the opposite army, and the Huns might securely trample on the degenerate Romans, whose close and compact order betrayed their own apprehensions, and who were equally incapable of supporting the dangers or the fatigues of a day of battle. The doctrine of predestination, so favorable to martial virtue, was carefully inculcated by the king of the Huns, who assured his subjects that the warriors— protected by heaven, were safe and invulnerable amidst the darts of the enemy, but that the unerring fates would strike their victims in the bosom of inglorious peace. "'I myself,' continued Attila, "'will throw the first javelin, and the wretch who refuses to imitate the example of his sovereign is devoted to inevitable death.' The spirit of the barbarians was rekindled by the presence, the voice, and the example of their intrepid leader, and Attila, yielding to their impatience, immediately formed his order of battle. At the head of his brave and faithful Huns he occupied in person the center of the line. The nations subject to his empire, the Rugians, the Heruli, the Thuringians, the Franks, the Burgundians, were extended on either hand, over the ample space of the Catalonian fields. The right wing was commanded by Alderic, king of the Gepidae, and the three valiant brothers, who reigned over the Ostrogoths, were posted on the left to oppose the kindred tribes of the Visigoths. The disposition of the allies was regulated by a different principle. Sangiban, the faithless king of the Alani, was placed in the center, where his motions might be strictly watched, and that the treachery might be instantly punished. Etius assumed the command of the left, and Theodoric of the right wing, while Torismond still continued to occupy the heights, which appear to have stretched on the flank, and perhaps the rear, of the Scythian army. The nations from the Volga to the Atlantic were assembled on the plain of Shalom, but many of these nations had been divided by faction, or conquest, or emigration, and the appearance of similar arms and ensigns, which threatened each other, presented the image of a civil war. The discipline and tactics of the Greeks and Romans form an interesting part of their national manners the attentive study of the military operations of xenophon or caesar or frederick when they are described by the same genius which conceived and executed them may tend to improve if such improvement can be wished the art of destroying the human species but the battle of Chalons can only excite our curiosity by the magnitude of the object since it was decided by the blind impetuosity of barbarians and has been related by partial writers whose civil or ecclesiastical professions secluded them from the knowledge of military affairs. Cassiodorus, however, had familiarly conversed with many Gothic warriors, who served in that memorable engagement, a conflict, as they informed him, fierce, various, obstinate, and bloody, such as could not be paralleled either in the present or in past ages. The number of the slain amounted to one hundred and sixty-two thousand, or, according to another account, three hundred thousand persons, and these incredible exaggerations suppose a real and effective loss sufficient to justify the historian's remark, that whole generations may be swept away by the madness of kings in the space of a single hour. After the mutual and repeated discharge of missile weapons, in which the archers of Scythia might signalize their superior dexterity, the cavalry and infantry of the two armies were furiously mingled in closer combat. The Huns, who fought under the eyes of their king, pierced through the feeble and doubtful center of the allies, separated their wings from each other, and, wheeling with a rapid effort to the left, directed their whole force against the Visigoths. As Theodoric rode along the ranks to animate his troops, he received a mortal stroke from the javelin of Andegis, a noble Ostrogoth, and immediately fell from his horse. The wounded king was oppressed in the general disorder, and trampled under the feet of his own cavalry, and this important death served to explain the ambiguous prophecy of the Harris Pieces. Attila already exulted in the confidence of victory, when the valiant Torisman descended from the hills, and verified the remainder of the prediction. The Visigoths, who had been thrown into confusion by the flight or defection of the Alani, gradually restored their order of battle and the Huns were undoubtedly vanquished, since Attila was compelled to retreat. He had exposed his person with the rashness of a private soldier, but the intrepid troops of the center had pushed forwards beyond the rest of the line, their attack was faintly supported, their flanks were unguarded, and the conquerors of Scythia and Germany were saved by the approach of the night from a total defeat. They retired within the circle of wagons that fortified their camp and the dismounted squadrons prepared themselves for a defense to which neither their arms nor their temper were adapted. The event was doubtful, but Attila had secured a last and honorable resource. The saddles and rich furniture of the cavalry were collected, by his order, into a funeral pile, and the magnanimous barbarian had resolved, if his intrenchments should be forced, to rush headlong into the flames, and to deprive his enemies of the glory which they might have acquired by the death or captivity of Attila. But his enemies had passed the night in equal disorder and anxiety. The inconsiderate courage of Taurisman was tempted to urge the pursuit, till he unexpectedly found himself with a few followers in the midst of the Scythian wagons. In the confusion of a nocturnal combat he was thrown from his horse, and the Gothic prince must have perished like his father, if his youthful strength and the intrepid zeal of his companions had not rescued him from this dangerous situation in the same manner but on the left of the line Etius himself separated from his allies ignorant of their victory and anxious for their fate encountered and escaped the hostile troops that were scattered over the plains of Chalons, and at length reached the camp of the goths which he could only fortify with a slight rampart of shields till the dawn of day the imperial general was soon satisfied of the defeat of attila who still remained inactive within his entrenchments and when he contemplated the bloody scene he observed, with secret satisfaction, that the loss had principally fallen on the barbarians. The body of Theodoric, pierced with honorable wounds, was discovered under a heap of the slain. His subjects bewailed the death of their king and father, but their tears were mingled with songs and acclamations, and his funeral rites were performed in the face of a vanquished enemy. The Goths, clashing their arms, elevated on a buckler his eldest son, Torismond, to whom they justly ascribed the glory of their success, and the new king accepted the obligation of revenge as a sacred portion of his paternal inheritance. Yet the Goths themselves were astonished by the fierce and undaunted aspect of their formidable antagonist, and their historian has compared Attila to a lion encompassed in his den, and threatening his hunters with redoubled fury. The kings and nations who might have deserted his standard in the hour of distress were made sensible that the displeasure of their monarch was the most imminent and inevitable danger." All his instruments of martial music incessantly sounded a loud and animating strain of defiance, and the foremost troops who advanced to the assault were checked or destroyed by showers of arrows from every side of the entrenchments. It was determined, in a general council of war, to besiege the king of the Huns in his camp, to intercept his provisions, and to reduce him to the alternative of a disgraceful treaty or an unequal combat. But the impatience of the barbarians soon disdained these cautious and dilatory measures and the mature policy of Aetius was apprehensive that, after the extirpation of the Huns, the Republic would be oppressed by the pride and power of the Gothic nation. The patrician exerted the superior ascendant of authority and reason to calm the passions, which the son of Theodoric considered as a duty, represented, with seeming affection and real truth, the dangers of absence and delay and persuaded torismond to disappoint by his speedy return the ambiguous designs of his brothers who might occupy the throne and treasures of toulouse after the departure of the goths and the separation of the allied army attila was surprised at the vast silence that reigned over the plains of chalons the suspicion of some hostile stratagem detained him several days within the circle of his wagons and his retreat beyond the rhine confessed the last victory which was achieved in the name of the Western Empire. Morovius and his Franks, observing a prudent distance, and magnifying the opinion of their strength by the numerous fires which they kindled every night, continued to follow the rear of the Huns till they reached the confines of Thuringia. The Thuringians served in the army of Attila, they traversed, both in their march and in their return, the territories of the Franks, and it was perhaps in this war that they exercised the cruelties which about fourscore years afterwards, were revenged by the son of Clovis. They massacred their hostages, as well as their captives. Two hundred young maidens were tortured with exquisite and unrelenting rage, their bodies were torn asunder by wild horses, or their bones were crushed under the weight of rolling wagons, and their unburied limbs were abandoned on the public roads as a prey to dogs and vultures. Such were those savage ancestors whose imaginary virtues have sometimes excited the praise and envy of civilized ages End of chapter thirty five part Two.